Hallelujah. Father, we do remember this day the mighty works that you have planned before time and have executed in history when your incarnate Son invaded this world with the message of the gospel, took on flesh and dwelt among us proclaiming, repent and believe that I am the way, the truth and the life. All of redemptive history had been building to this moment, even as we will touch on passages from the Old Covenant this day that proclaim the Messiah to come. And now through these songs and through your word, I pray that we would proclaim Him come. I pray that you would open up to us, Lord, the value, the appreciation, the deep and profound mystery, the incredible power, weight, and implication of the gospel now established fulfilled in Christ's complete work on Calvary, buried, resurrected, ascended, now ruling and reigning and extending His kingdom to the far corners of the earth. From this land in which we dwell to the furthest reaches, the name of Christ is going forth and taking dominion in ransoming heart by heart, a people for His name's sake. I pray as you open the scriptures to us, Lord, through preaching of your word this day, open our hearts to receive them. Spirit, this is your work. It is not the preacher, it is not the hearer who has the ability. Indeed, these words would be something we could not see if the Spirit did not give us eyes. So open our eyes of our understanding and our heart this day to know and to appreciate the riches therein contained that you might be glorified, that your name might be more visibly manifest through your people living in light of these truths. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have to open our Bibles together to behold the Word of God in its clarity and in its authority. I would encourage you to do just that this morning by turning to Psalm 71 today. Turn to Psalm 71, and we will, in a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the Word. We will consider a message this morning under the title, A Mature Prayer Life. A Mature Prayer Life. It is only natural for this title to arise from this song, as I have seen by observation and my study this week. It is written by a man who no doubt is close, close to death. He is an elderly individual, yet he's recalling the faithfulness of the Lord across the scope of his entire life. That is, by years, by human years, he is a mature man. But more than this, the author of our psalm today is mature by spiritual measures. And more than this still, he is giving us a song and a prayer. And so we have an evidence, we have an example, evidence of a mature prayer life in these words before us today. So therefore, there is much for us to learn as we seek to grow in our own spiritual maturity as believers in this room, as we witness an example of one who, in great difficulty, places his complete and total trust in the Lord. The aim of this morning's message is that our prayer life would deepen as we are taught through this example, that our prayer life would deepen as we are taught by the example of Psalm 71 this morning, all for God's glory and for the increase of our own godliness. Would you stand with your Bible open with me this morning to Psalm 71 out of reverence, respect for the Holy Word of God, and let us consider these words. Listen as I declare Psalm 71, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. Verse 7, I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. 
Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. Verse 14, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? Verse 20, you have made me see many troubles and calamities. will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will sing praise. I will sing. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 71 provides for us the rarest of treasures, the rarest of treasures indeed. Psalm 71 is a perfectly preserved, spirit-inspired song and prayer of an elderly and godly man. Now, in the course of life, there are times in the center, in the middle, where we have a bunch of our life and vitality yet left. And I remember when I was in youth group growing up, surrounded by what I thought were a cadre of friends who were on fire for God, and they were going to take the world by storm. We imagined ourselves with the kind of acquire the fire kind of zeal, turning our little world and perhaps greater upside down. One thing I noticed over the years, it's been 20 some now, is that the winnowing fork of life's trials has sifted the chaff from the wheat. And those who confessed Christ with a certain zeal two decades ago, many of them are now lost to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They showed themselves to have no rooted faith at all. They were like the seed that was stolen by the birds or planted on the shallow, rocky soil. So, consequently, I'm sure you've experienced this as well in your own life. It occurs to me that it is rare indeed to witness a faith that travels across the course of life's uh, all, the, all of life's challenges and the history of the calamities and the difficulties and that which tests the faith right down to its very core. It is a treasure indeed to see someone who in the waning years of life has a vibrant and still growing faith in the Lord. It has been such a treasure to me in my own spiritual maturity to witness a few of these individuals in my experience. In the immaturity of youth, I would have wanted to surround myself with those with the youthful zeal to serve the Lord. But as the Lord grows and tempers me in my own spiritual maturity, now I have grown to value those with the fire of biblical truth and the looking forward to heavenly realities deep within the aging eyes of the saint who has served faithfully for decade upon decade. And if you have the privilege to listen to a prayer like that, and you understand its value, you know indeed that it is a rare commodity. And this is what we have in Psalm 71. But we have more than that. We have not just a prayer from someone that you respect who is elderly, aging, and thriving still with the life of Christ, but we have a prayer of one who is inspired by the Spirit of God to record these words, who himself finds Christ, who he trusted uh, in in the future to come still faithful, after all these years of difficulty. He finds himself at this moment, at his weakest stage of life, in need of intense help, reminding us of the theme of last week's message. Understanding the gospel means understanding our own insufficiencies and consequently our inadequacies and consequently the sufficiency of Christ. 
The psalmist is aging and he finds his needs are greater than ever and his ability to address them has never been so lacking. And I suppose this is a mark of age no matter what your trials are. That is, your needs are greater and your ability to address them, to supply them is ever more lacking. Psalm 71 reminds us that only a vibrant, growing faith can bridge this widening chasm. Our author, evidence here, or our author, evidencing the sovereign grace of God, demonstrates a faith sufficient for the aged. Let us ask ourselves that question this morning. Is your faith strong enough to carry you to death's door? Is your faith strong enough to carry you through a debilitating disease right up until the Lord calls you home, no matter in the suffering that that path promises? Our author evidences such a faith in this passage today. Here we behold the ripening fruit of a mature prayer life. We are listening to the heart cry of a lifelong expert in bending the ear of God. We are listening to the heart cry of a lifelong expert in making an appeal on certain grounds that compels, if we could say it, or bends, if we could say it, the ear of God to listen. To illustrate the effects of Psalm 71, both to the positive and to the negative, it is interesting to consider these truths and principles alongside certain lives in biblical history. Many think David is the author of the psalm, though it appears in our text anonymous this morning. And if you consider this psalm alongside David's life, you can find in him an example of an individual for whom this prayer was well fitted, a growing faith even though he was aging, fraught with trials though secure in his trust in Yahweh. But consider someone else like Samson, for instance. This prayer just doesn't seem to fit. Because Samson never advanced in his spiritual maturity to have a prayer such as this framed upon his lips. He couldn't recall the faithfulness of God in the same way because of the rebelliousness of youth and that perpetual adolescence, sometimes we call it. Sociologists identify some of the trends in our own society attending Samson's way. He never grew up. His spiritual life was crisis management to crisis management all the way up to his death. This is not to say he wasn't a believer, but it is to say he wasn't a mature believer in the sense that we have it evidenced before us today in Psalm 71. And so let us consider what we can learn from this prayer and this song. Let's consider a few lessons under the heading, Building Blocks for a Cumulative Case in Prayer. Cumulative, building uh, one stage, the foundation, and then a little higher with the walls, and then you cap it with the roof. You have a complete edifice, as it were. That's the analogy. There's a sort of laying foundation, or precept upon precept, the cumulative case that the author of this song builds in prayer. And so if we can identify those elements, it will surely help us pray. It will surely teach us something of spiritual maturity. So I have identified a few as follows, trying to summarize some of the text. Number one, entreaty. The first part is the crying out to the Lord, the request, the entreaty. Secondly, there's the, the occasion, the pressing circumstances the author feels which cause him to cry out in prayer. Thirdly, there are vows, promises made. Fourthly, there is acknowledgement of covenant. Covenant, there is a attending to the way in the mind. There's an acknowledging of the history and scope of the author's relationship to the Lord. And finally, most importantly, there's praise. There's a glorifying of the Lord along the way and especially at the end. And in fact, most of the psalm by category is given to glorifying the Lord. So these are the building blocks for this cumulative case in prayer that are evidence in our text today. A brief note on structure. The first third of the psalm, verses 1 through 9, if you will, uh, give us a kind of shape. First of all, there's the entreaty. It's followed by a in, in verses one and two, it's or verses one through three. It's followed by the occasion, in verse four. There's a note on covenant, verses five through seven, and then praise in verse eight, and then the second uh, portion of the psalm, the second two thirds, if you will, seem to reprise and expand this shape and then add one category. There's an entreaty restated in verse nine. The occasion expounded in verses 10 through 13. Vows are added, 
a commitment by the, uh, by the worshiper of what he will do upon answered prayer in verses 14 through 16. There's more uh, to note on covenant in verses 17 and 18. And then there's closing praise in verses 19 through 24. So there's a certain parallel in the structure, a statement of outline and then a reprise and expansion of these building blocks of prayer. So let us consider them this morning, first of all, in treaty, realizing where help is found. The author of Psalm 71 realizes where to turn in life's darkest hour and where to turn in life's greatest blessing, I might add. He turns to the Lord, Yahweh, verse 1. In you, O Lord, that's the tetragrammaton, that's the consonants which form Yahweh as we translate it, the highest, if you will, or most profound in some sense, name for God. It bears repeating, though we've often emphasized this in the text. Who is Yahweh? He's the one revealed to Moses as the I am that I am. The philosophical category and view is a saity, which means self-contained, needing nothing outside oneself to complete oneself. Yahweh is the self-contained, eternal, self-existent, one upon whom everything is contingent, responsible for everything outside of himself. This is the I am that I am. More than this, he is the I am that I am who has condescended to fallen man, to bind his purposes to man's experience in covenant with him. Moses experienced this typologically as he was the representative head in some sense of God's people. He heard the promises of God for him and his people. And in this way, Yahweh established for him an understanding of certain terms, certain attributes unique to the character of God. He is the covenant keeper. So this is where help is found. As Moses turned to Yahweh, as people of faith turn to Him, yet today, even as we turn to Jehovah God in Christ, His manifest Son, as we pray in His name as Christians, yet today, so the author of Psalm 71 knew where to turn. In you, he says, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In verse 2, he, it goes on, he says, In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Where else do we turn? We turn to Yahweh and we beseech Him on grounds of His righteousness. We turn to His righteousness. More aspects of Him that are the building blocks of faith and God, faithful and God-honoring prayer. The righteousness of God in this place, or the righteousness of God um, here is expounded by Herman Venemon. He says that the righteousness here exhibited, or in this place, is that virtue by which He makes good His promises. That virtue by which God makes good His promises. The righteousness of God, therefore, or that is to say, compels Him, in the words of Venema, to revenge injuries and reward piety. That is to judge sin and to reward holiness, which is elsewhere called His veracity. The author of Psalm 71 has realized and experienced the righteousness of the Lord. He knows that he is the perfect judge who satisfies perfectly every promise that he has made in its fulfillment in his perfect time. So it's to this righteousness that he appeals. He also knows that this righteousness holds out judgment for those who will not surrender to the terms of his favor. If you're content to... Uh, be outside the camp of God's favor as represented at this time with His tabernacling presence among His people, where the terms and conditions of favor were satisfied by those prefiguring animal sacrifices, if you're out there entertaining your own either self-centered or pagan religious ideals, the author of Psalm 71 knows that when the righteousness of God visits in His appointed reckoning, those who find themselves in this place there will not be deliverance and rescue for them, but instead the faithful will be delivered and rescued from them as they are destroyed. And, to his right, and therefore to his righteousness he turns. And thirdly, under verse 3, be to me a rock of refuge, recalling the name of God revealed to Moses, that foundation stone, point of reference, and fixture in the experience of the Exodus, God the rock 
who attended the faithful through the wilderness to the promised land. The rock that sprang forth with living water for them in the thirst of their wilderness. The rock identified in the new covenant as Christ. It's to this rock which our author turns, making his entreaty because he realizes where his help comes from. The rock of refuge who supplied the provisions necessary in the wilderness of his people perhaps could supply him in his own wilderness of old age. It says, be to me a rock of refuge to which I continually come. You have given me, given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. I remember a line from a movie where a sergeant says to a private or something like that, this is how you complain. And the, uh, the private was making his appeal, not for his own sake, but to the mission. So he was identifying a transcendent ideal under which he was accountable and also governed the entire circumstances of this military operation. So as he brought his entreaty to the general over him, the general recognized and heard him because he was doing so in a way that recognized the sovereignty, the authority of the thing. Too often we pray like desperate people who we think the kingdom of God will be at a total loss if we're not rescued right now because we are so important. How do we know we're so important? Because we feel overwhelming pain at a certain circumstance or hardship we're going through. Or we feel overwhelming loss when we've experienced something. Well, surely what's overwhelming to me must be overwhelming to God because I basically worship a God I've conveniently constructed in my own image. And if we're not careful to hold our prayers accountable, sometimes the desperate self-centeredness that comes out, especially in times of deep trial, betrays a kind of idolatry. Psalm 71 tells us this is how you pray. This is how you complain, if you will. You make your entreaty recognizing where your help comes from. If answering your prayer is commensurate with the command of God, you got a real good chance that you're answering or that you're asking rightly, that your prayer will be heard because you do not ask amiss, as the new covenant says. So this is where the author turns. In verse 9, he restates his entreaty. In the second, again, recapitulation of the structure, do not cast me off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength is spent. And this phrase, as an entreaty, moves us also to the occasion. We find something of the context of his need. He is an elderly man, and he is coming to the Lord with great deficiencies. This leads us to point number two in our message today, building blocks for a cumulative case in prayer. First of all, entreaty. Secondly, let us consider occasion. Recognizing why divine intervention is necessary. Recognizing why divine intervention is necessary. In the words of verse 9, it's obviously necessary because this is an old man who is talking and his enemies are young and strong. There are many more reasons why divine intervention is necessary. Chief among them, we are powerless against our own sin as sinners, generally speaking. We come to the Lord not just as an elderly person might, asking for Him to save us, give us maybe a little recharge of the vitality of youth to face the demons in front of us, but we do so as dead men and women, as it were, with the Spirit sparking in us that initial desire to grasp out, to entreat Him in the first place. We recognize when we come to Christ realizing and confessing our sin and placing our faith in His Messiah, why divine intervention is ultimately necessary. Because we not only have no ground for our prayer to be heard inasmuch as we deserve hell for our wicked sin, but we also have no reason to think God will intervene in any lesser category so long as we are separated by our willful rebellion against Him. There is always occasion for this kind of prayer recognizing why divine intervention is necessary. Let us notice a few aspects of this in the text. First of all, verse 4. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. So three things that the author identifies in this poetic form from which he needs deliverance. He needs deliverance from the hand of the wicked, the grasp of the unjust, and the cruel man, if you will. Or three identities 
for the evil one, wicked, unjust, and cruel. The wicked, the unjust, and the cruel. The sinner who is doubling down in his God-hatred, in his rebellion. They seek to capitalize on the vulnerable. The author of Psalm 71 is himself vulnerable as an elderly person. If it was David, he's an aging king who might fear that he would lose control of his realm because younger, ambitious men might take the opportunity to usurp him, seeking to capitalize on his age. But this is not the only stage of life that the wicked seek to exploit. They seek to take advantage of the innocent, the widow, the orphan, and the elderly, all at the weakest stages, the most vulnerable aspects of their life. This is a constant and recurring expression of evil. You may fall into this category, but if you don't, you know people who do. There is the widow, there is the orphan among us, there is the innocent and the helpless, there is the aging, the elderly. We, ha- we are surrounded by those who present an occasion for divine intervention. And so this Psalm 71 offers us a model for how to pray along those lines. We can turn to Psalm 71, for instance, to pray for the life of the near million innocent ones who are slaughtered in the womb by abortion in this country. Psalm 71 tells us that it is the wicked, the unjust, and the cruel that seek to exploit them in this vulnerable stage of life. Rescue them, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel man. That is a selfless and that is a godly scriptural prayer that God might intervene on behalf of those who can't help themselves and that we might realize, even on behalf of praying for others, when divine intervention is necessary, that we can discern where the wickedness and the cruelty and the injustice crops up in our society, in our land, in our experience. We can identify it as such and take the weapons of our warfare, which are not carnal, but indeed are more mighty still, to the tearing down of principalities and strongholds and wage effective spiritual war, building this cumulative case for prayer. In verses 10 through 13, we have more of the occasion. For my enemies speak concerning me, those who watch for my life consult together. And notice the conspiracy, the conniving to take advantage of this weak moment in the author's life. Ask yourself if this sounds biblically familiar. Verse 11, they say, oh, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. Oh, God, be not far from me. We have a shift in voice now. Oh, my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. So the occasion is further expounded in the second section. The wicked, the unjust, and the cruel are seen as those who take this opportunity to say and to act as if God will not protect his own. They're seeking to exploit this opportunity. Does this not remind us of Christ on Calvary? We've gone over this in some length out of Matthew 27. Those who declared their authority over Christ, the priests, uh, the, the uh, Pilate himself, the religious leaders, civil and religious, the leaders who gathered around and in fact all the people in mocking and derision of our Savior on the cross, they uttered things like, if God, say, if God will help him, why doesn't he save him now? Seeking in their derision to cast aspersions not only on Christ, but indeed the power of God to save the vulnerable. This is, the, this is always the case in suffering. That is to say, this uh, occasion of suffering in the experience of people is exploited by the enemy as an opportunity to propagate a lie. The lie that the enemy is interested in propagating through suffering is a negation of the biblical axiom of Psalm 14.1. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The enemy likes to come in at the point of suffering and to usurp the throne of God, seek to usurp the lordship of God and say, See this suffering? The fool has said in his heart, there is a God. There is powerful apologetic value in these scriptures here today. As I have listened to the objections and the testimony of unbelief even in our culture today, perhaps most popular is this notion that so long as suffering exists, there must not be a God to save. 
So long as there is deep and vulnerable circumstances in the course of an individual's life or in certain segments of society, well, then God must, not be, power, must be powerless to help. So there are two ways in which the enemy seeks to overthrow the truth of God by exploiting suffering. One is this sort of passive way of denying that there is God in the first place and trying to point to suffering to prove it. The second is an external and more proactive or aggressive form, and that's to try to take advantage of the moment to actually take ground for the kingdom of Satan to intervene and to try to make war against the Lord and those whom he loves, neither prove effective. As we see in the testimony of Christ, his slaughter on Calvary actually proved to dethrone his enemies. The tools of the enemy are turned against him, and this principle of upsetting the intentions of the wicked one is illustrated through covenant history over and over and over again. One of the building blocks of spirit-conscious uh, and in scripturally conscious prayer is to recognize even in our suffering that it is not an occasion for lack of faith but indeed it's an occasion for our faith to grow when god intervenes on our behalf when we are powerless to help ourselves what a great opportunity for us to testify to to our own soul's experience and then to proclaim to the world that the lord is king of kings that he sees and intervenes in the affairs of men. And that in the end, at his day of reckoning, when the balances are righted, we find that he is Yahweh, the sovereign and perfect covenant keeper, the one who is righteous, who delivers and rescues, the one to whom he or the one of whom his ear is inclined to those who cry, Save me, be my rock of refuge. And so the occasion in this psalm reminds us that suffering or difficulties are a way we can recognize why divine intervention is necessary. And in a way, they are a great gift because they remind us that self-help is never the answer. The intervention of the Lord on behalf of the needs of His people is always true deliverance. Thirdly, this morning, building block for a cumulative case in prayer. We build a cumulative case by entreating the Lord recognizing the occasion why divine intervention is necessary thirdly vows pledges upon answered prayer the author makes a few in verses 14 through 16 he says but i will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more my mouth will tell of your righteous acts of your deeds of salvation all the day for their number is past my knowledge with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Here the author, in the maturity of his prayer life, now developed with all these aspects of clarity. He is careful to, uh, to commit himself to promises he will make to proclaim the Lord's glory upon the answer to his prayer and while he waits. This is what's indicated by the tense of the, of the verbs here. I will hope continually. I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. This is profound indeed. This is a protective, uh, this is pro proactive, that is to say. This statement of heart is proactive against the tendencies of the human soul in times such as these. In occasions which require divine intervention, fraught with overwhelming suffering, the tendency of the human heart is often to drift into doubt and disillusionment. Doubt and disillusionment. Instead of this, our author confesses that he will and he is proclaiming his deeds of salvation all the day, the salvation of the Lord. There's another tendency of the human heart in great blessing or times when things are going well to be distracted and just serve ourselves. This is a tendency, whether in suffering or in blessing, to either doubt and be disillusioned in our faith or to be distracted and self-serving. Think of Job's wife. Job, in the extreme uh, anguish of his circumstance, under the afflicting hand of a sovereign God, his faith is tested. 
Will God answer and deliver, or should he take the advice of his wife? What was the advice of his wife? Doubt and disillusionment. Curse God and die. Yeah, this, you can't take it anymore. You know, suicide is the only way out. You've reached that point of no probable, emotional, physical, whatever, return. This is the lie of the enemy. Yet vowing, pledging, making this statement of commitment to acknowledge the Lord's deeds in our time of suffering and acknowledge Him upon our answer is fortification against the tendencies of the human heart. It's an element, a building block for a mature prayer life. On the other hand, as we mentioned, in times of great blessing, think of the nine out of the ten lepers. They went on to do whatever they had planned. They cared more about their goals and plans upon their healing than they did acknowledging the glory of the one who had the power to release them unto health. And one lone man, the 10% of that community, returned and gave glory to the Lord. He was perhaps the one who in the end received the greatest benefit from the healing because his soul was nourished by the touch of God's hand, not just his body. There is far more at play in our needs and his answers than just our physical well-being, even our emotional vitality, feeling happy rather than depressed. There is the glory of God at stake and the plight of the one who is praying, the plight of the petitioner and the answer from the Almighty. And this pledge, these pledges that the author makes of his restating his commitment to glorify the Lord guards him against these tendencies. He says that he will declare your deeds of salvation. I will, uh, my mouth will tell of your righteousness, verse 15, your righteous acts of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Now, how much of the Bible did the author have access to? Well, not as much as we do, to be sure. However, his knowledge of the faithfulness of the Lord and the record of covenant history, as well as his own experience, was enough to give him fodder for praise and proclamation of the deeds of God's salvation all day long because he recognized that the number of these was past his knowledge, beyond his comprehension, how much God had revealed of his great salvation to this man born millennia ago in covenant history, which begs the question, brothers and sisters, how much more do we have still? We have the complete canon. We have the revelation of Christ come in flesh, God become man, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, dying in our stead. His blood shed for our sins we celebrated in communion last week. This is our inheritance. This is the testimony of the deeds of salvation we have now. And so as we look back to the testimony of this saint of old, we marvel that he had enough to praise the Lord so that without ceasing, if he were to dedicate all his thoughts to the things of God, there would be time for nothing else. And so do we, and by far greater degree. And this pledging upon answered prayer or commitment along the way is a powerful a reinforcer in the mature believer's prayer life. Fourthly, this morning, covenant. A building block for this cumulative case in prayer is the acknowledgement of the history and scope of the author's relationship with the Lord. This is huge. Verses 5 through 7. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Notice that clause, from my youth. He is building his entreaty upon, he is making his case upon the acknowledgement of the Lord's faithfulness from earlier years in his life. Earlier still, verse 6, upon you I have leaned from before my birth. Be be before my birth? Yes, this author recognizes the sovereign electing grace of God. He knows that the favor of God was shed abroad in his life and experience before he even felt the oxygen of this earth. While he was still in the womb of his mother, the Lord was faithful to him. He had called him, set him apart, like Jeremiah, to be writing these words later in his elderly life. He had appointed him by his sovereign decree to the task of inscripturating at least this much for yours, my edification today. What a powerful faith builder recognizing the history and scope of his relationship 
with the Lord in the course of his prayer. He says, I have been a portent to many. That means a sign or warning or a byword, something that people see as a negative. But you are my strong refuge. In other words, in spite of the negative things that people perceive of my life, the ultimate truth is you took me by your delivering hand. You were the maidservant. You were the midwife, so to speak, that delivered me into this world, not just protecting my physical well-being, but giving me the calling that I yet walk in even as my physical eyes grow dim and I utter this prayer of desperation. This acknowledgement of the history and scope of relationship continues and again it's restated in the second portion, verses 17 and 18. O God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. So now he's broadened the scope beyond the course of his life from infancy to elderly status, even to the next generation. He sees a multi-generational purpose in the favor of the Lord. The reason he was called forth from his mother, mother's womb by the sovereign election of God is so that he might proclaim the message of truth to the generation that will follow him. This is how you complain, if you will. This is how a strong, mature prayer life utters its request before the Lord, recognizing the history past and the history future, if you will, the entire scope of the believer's relationship with the Lord. Parents in this room, and this could apply to anyone with the maturity to encourage someone else, to influence someone else, spiritually speaking, let me ask you this question, what history of relationship with the Lord have you provided or are you providing your children that will give them the building blocks of mature prayer when they are dying? Have you ever thought of that? The weight of our job, parents, suddenly increased, did it not, by the testimony of the usefulness of being taught of the Lord as his, in his youth? The author of Psalm 71, let me ask you again, what history of relationship with the Lord are you providing with your children? Sharing the Word of God diligently, regularly, disciplining them with consistency according to the nurture and admonition that the Lord commands. What interaction are you providing those who you spiritually influence that will give them the building blocks of a mature prayer life when they are aging? when their lungs and their eyes are failing them, when they feel as though life's enemies could tip them over with their little finger, what are we giving them now? The author of Psalm 71 recognizes the great benefit of his youth. From my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. More than this, he does not take this for granted. He recognizes his responsibility to pay it forward, if you will. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Give me grace to endure this trial that I might give grace through my proclamation of the faithfulness of the Lord to the little ones, to the next generation, that I might share with them some building blocks so that they can pray in faith when they are dying like me one day. This is the scope, the covenant scope, acknowledging the history of the author's relationship with the Lord that is a building block for mature prayer. Finally this morning, praise. The author gives the greater portion, at least by category, to this, glorifying the Lord. He begins in a single verse, verse 8. He says, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. An essential building block in this cumulative case for prayer is his glorifying of the Lord. This, of course, focuses attention on the sovereignty of the Almighty and away from probably the suffocating and claustrophobic impulse of caring only about your circumstance, especially when you're fighting for your next breath or it seems like just one little thing in your entire life would be destroyed. He goes on in the second portion, verses 19 to the close, to extol the Lord in these terms. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things. There is almost a juxtaposition, or there is, in fact, a sort of poetic juxtaposition and the acknowledging of the greatness of the Lord 
in contrast to the feebleness of his own life. He is acknowledging in this reality something greater than life itself. Without faith in what was promised beyond the feebleness of our physical unwinding, succumbing to the entropy of this fallen universe, this prayer makes no sense. But acknowledging that the righteousness of the Lord reaches to the heavens, and if we are bound to that chariot through history, if, we, if you will, we will ascend from the grave by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ one day, then these words begin to ring with clarity and truth. You have done great things, O God. Who is like you? Who is like you? We'll close with a quote in a couple of moments of praise inspired by that four-word phrase, who is like you? Of course, the question is rhetorical in a way. There's no one like the Lord. But there is no one like the Lord because there is, there is no one who in the sum of his being is righteousness. And there is no one who is manifest the same by reaching with, through his deeds to the highest of heavens and manifesting himself through the course of history, intervening in the affairs of men to make his name grow a great generation after generation building his kingdom against all sinful odds to the glory of his risen Christ. Verse 20, you have made me see many troubles and calamities. Revive me again from the depths of the earth. Again, resurrection language. Extolling the glories of God, the power to rejuvenate his aging body, breathing new life into him as he looks forward to the day when God will reclaim all according to its original intent by the power of his shed blood to redeem. Verse 21, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Notice the multiplication of means that the author employs to worship the Lord and to glorify Him. He does so with his whole being and an array of, of means or instruments at his disposal. May my soul, my tongue, my lips, the harp and lyre, may body, mind, and instrumentation all be dedicated to this all-consuming glorious task of magnifying your greatness and glory. How vast is his love towards us that he has sent Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. If the author of Psalm 71 had again enough fodder to give him, you know, to give him the themes and to fill in the gaps of his prayer life and to fill him with songs of worship such as this, oh, brothers and sisters, Richer still is the well from which we draw reasons, language, experiences to praise His holy name. Having been ransomed and redeemed by the shed blood of Christ from the clutches of hell-binding sin. Praise the Lord. How big is your praise collection? Let me ask you this by way of application. How many praises have you collected how many thoughts and meditations on the Holy Scriptures have you filed away in the cabinet of your affections to access in those moments of weakness to utter to the Lord in thankfulness and glorious praise? You can do this by memorizing. You can do this by thinking about these texts. You can do it by listening to resources that extol the beauty and depth of the Scriptures so that it's a ready tool at your disposal. So as it were, by soul, by tongue, by lips, by harp and lyre, you can dedicate your life and prayer life to the glorification of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me close with one example of this. This from Adam Clark, a commentator. He was dwelling on these four words, who is like you? And wrote just this glorious paragraph in response to this. He says, who can resemble him? Who is eternal? He can have none before and there is none after. For in the infinite unity of Trinity, He is that eternal, unlimited, impartial, incomprehensible, uncompounded, ineffable being, 
whose essence is hidden from all created intelligences and whose counsels cannot be fathomed by any creature that even his own hand can form. Who is like unto thee will excite wonder. That is that phrase. Who is like unto thee will excite wonder, amazement, praise and adoration of angels and man to all eternity. And so the psalmist's prayer closes with a crescendo inspiring its readers to do the same. And here we have one example. Use this as a pattern I encourage you in your own prayer time and prayer life so that your heart might overflow with further examples of His glory as you recognize His need and recognize His great sufficiency. That our prayer life would deepen as we are taught through this example again so that He might be glorified as we grow in godliness. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the opportunity of beholding your holy word. And Lord, we are aware of our responsibility of holding ourselves accountable to it. I pray that your word would cut through and discern those areas in our life that need to be held into conformity to the great example of faith-filled prayer that we've beheld this day, so that we might grow in grace and grow in our ability to glorify your great name. For those in this room to whom the affections that are encapsulated in this prayer fall as though a foreign language, I pray that you would draw them unto repentance and faith. Quicken within them a desire, Lord, even as you are powerful enough to do so from before a person is born, as we see testified in our text today. Draw them irresistibly by your grace unto confession and faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord to which the author of Psalm 71 looked forward and to whom we look now having arrived in history. Lord, thank you for the power of your word to change us into your image and to do its work among us. We pray that we would arrive, Lord, and at the assembly uh, next week with testimonies to offer as to how you have used this word in our lives to conform us to the glories of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen.